Goodbye Forever, Volume 2 by Nat Chang Rinpoche Chapter 13 The Menu at Restaurant Reality Morning arrived. I had not dreamed, but I had not expected to have dreams of any significance after the lamentably ludicrous Latihan. It deserved a chapter in The Joy of Suffering by Kali Yuga. I disappeared as planned the night before. I had no wish to meet my hosts. I heard no noises of stirring as I carried my panniers one at a time down the stairs. I made the separate journeys in stocking feet in order to be silent. I noticed no movements at any window as I removed the ground sheet covering from my motorcycle and fixed the panniers. I finally brought down my rocket bag and strapped it to the sissy bars. I pushed my motorcycle a hundred yards and down a side street before I sat astride and kick-started. The 500cc engine booming into life brought a smile to my face. I was back in control of my life again. In five seconds, I was out of sight. In half an hour, I was out on the open road in the spacious embrace of the horizon. It felt slightly like escape from Colditz. Not that I had any idea of my departure being prevented. It would have taken more than Atlas to do that, PE teacher though he was. Even aided and abetted by Amy and Kate, he would not have detained me. The idea of their attempting to circumvent my departure actually caused me slight amusement. But then the humour of the idea was chilled by the idea that Kate had incarcerated herself there. She'd made herself a conceptual prisoner of Amy and Atlas. And although I didn't believe that Amy had any ill intentions, I was now far less certain of Atlas than I'd been the previous afternoon. Still, Amy did seem entirely good-natured. I felt, in the end, that she'd probably not see Kate ill-treated. For my part, I'd said what I could to leave Kate with the idea that she might want to leave at some point. That was the same advice that Jan had given me at Sammy Ling, and so the rest would have to be up to her. As I rode south, I concluded that Atlas was, to some degree, psychopathic. He wanted sexual attention. He got it for what it was worth. He feared I'd stolen his limelight with my guitar playing, so he curtailed me with Tangerine Dream. Good luck to him. He wanted to be the centre of attention. He succeeded. More power to his elbow. I had no interest in being the centre of attention, so I didn't mind. I didn't care that he curtailed my guitar number. Ten minutes of strange sounds was quite enough for me. To have gone on longer would not have been interesting. I was not seeking attention, so I wasn't put out when the attention was taken away. I was relieved. It gave me the opportunity to slide off unnoticed by Kate, Amy and the rest of the mushroom-befuddled company. I had no desire to see any of them again, 
Kate was fine, or had been at Samileng, but Amy was vaguely vapid. Atlas? Atlas was banal, boorish and bestial. Amy and Atlas seemed to be caught in a massive, self-created illusion. But what was new about that? That's how Buddhism viewed everyone who hadn't realised the non-dual state. Maybe there was normal illusion and socially dysfunctional illusion. They did, however, hold down conventional careers, so they obviously had to relate with the ordinary world in some way. Maybe there were other denizens of delirium out there of whom I was unaware. But did local butchers, bakers and greengrocers attend luridly loathsome latihans and spend evenings in tiresomely turbid trance states? Of course, I researched latihan later. I discovered that what I'd experienced in Liverpool was about as far removed from latihan as bear baiting. Much as I repeatedly acquitted myself of responsibility for Kate, I kept returning in my mind to whether I could have acted differently or said more to put Kate on her guard. I felt worried about leaving her in that scene from Bruegel. She was adult, however, and I really had said enough to make her think. She could always write to me if she needed help. What could I do anyway? Kidnap her? No, I had no alternative but to make my last statement by departing without a word. I'd done that before in my life. Sometimes it seemed the best option. But was it the Nakpa's option? Would Dudjum Rinpoche have thought I'd done my best? I could have felt aggrieved at having my time wasted, I could have felt aggrieved with myself for not having left on the first evening or for having gone to Liverpool in the first place. In the end, I decided that these occasional bizarre experiences were part of my education. Dujam Rimshe had instructed me to go and be a Nakpa in the Western world, to experience what was experienced by those whom I would eventually teach. I suppose that, in some sense, the Liverpool Latihan had been a part of that. At least I knew how deranged it was possible to be in the West, and at least I knew that I'd passed through the experience without having acted badly in any way. My Vajrayana training in the Himalayas was by far the most important training, but I was not going to live there. I was going to live in the West. I had to learn how to be in the West. I had to learn how to be surrounded by people who had no idea what I was doing. I had to learn how to relate with different kinds of people with widely different points of view and widely different viewpoints, philosophies, beliefs and ethics. I had to learn how to navigate the vertiginous vicissitudes of the 1970s without succumbing to their shabbiness, seediness, sleaziness, sordidness or squalor. Vajrayana had to work in my own culture, 
and I could not teach Vajrayana here without living here, exactly as here was. I couldn't immure myself in a Tibetan centre, attractive though that prospect might be. That would be no different from remaining in the Himalayas, and Dujum Rinpoche had advised against that quite decisively. I had much to learn. There was no curriculum, however, other than whatever presented itself next on the menu at Restaurant Reality. What was to be learnt then was how I could be in every situation that presented itself. What was Vajrayana at a Latihan? What was Vajrayana in supermarkets, cocktail parties, theatres, swimming pools, greengrocers' shops, race courses, pubs and clubs, military tattoos, holiday camps, church graveyards, seaside esplanades, public parks, police stations, seaside resorts, Morris dancing events, Napoleonic war enactments, or walking down the typical quotidian high street in the average small English town. What was Vajrayana at an art school? That was the most easily answered because that involved appreciation. That was as far as my thoughts took me, interspersed with empty gazing, and eventually I was back in Bristol. I was welcomed home by Penelope, Merrill and Rebecca. It was heartwarming. It was refreshing and wholesome to experience their naturalness and, without any tedious implications, their carefree normality. They had a great love of the weird when it came to the arts, but somehow they were not demented, distorted or degraded by it. After an outrageously righteous ragu prepared by Merrill, Rebecca asked, So, how was it at Sammy Ling? It was good, I smiled. I fed the yak and dree. I made candles. I met some charming people and had a deal of good conversation. And I was able to spend a lot of time in meditation. And the Lama? You were going to talk to him? Akong Rinpoche? Yes, I had a wonderful conversation with Akong Rinpoche. So, what did he say? He asked about my practice. He asked me who gave me robes. And then he told me that all would be well for me. He obviously had a great deal of respect for Dudrum Rinpoche and, well... That was it, without going into technical detail. I did tell him about my plan in terms of becoming an art school lecturer and going out to the Himalayas as often as I could over the winter and spring holidays. He seemed to think that was good as long as I could also find time for solitary retreats. So, really, yes, I got all that I could reasonably use in terms of my meeting. I'm happy with it all or almost happy with it all. Almost, inquired Merrill with a mischievous grin. Yes, almost. I wasn't quite so pleased with... I chuckled. 
the fear and loathing in Liverpool. Fear and loathing in Liverpool, Rebecca shrieked with laughter. Right, yes, we were wondering what you did in Liverpool after you phoned. It sounded quite mysterious, Merrill shrilled. What happened? You'll never guess. I gave them the unabridged account and there was more laughter that night than there'd been for a long time. You're a danger to yourself, you know, Rebecca laughed. You just fall in with situations and one day it might be more than you bargained for. Yes, I think you're right. I shook my head in perplexed bemusement at my own gauche naivety and gullibility. I think I'm going to have to avoid spiritual types in the future. Especially acrobatic masturbators, Rebecca cackled. That's such an utter hoot. Well, to hear about it anyway. I imagine it must have been rather gross. Yes, it was gross, as you say. Any grosser and he'd have been running a vegetable store. The three ladies shrieked with laughter at that, so I gave it another twist. The only grosser experience in my life was a toilet I had the discomfort to encounter in Lucknow. That's really too funny, said Penelope. What were you doing in Lucknow? I was on my way to Nepal by train from Delhi and it was one of the stops. I wouldn't do that again. I'd fly from Delhi and avoid that if I could afford it. It's a nine-day journey from Macleod Gange to Kathmandu and I wouldn't even subject Atlas to that. I would, stated Merrill quite firmly, once a month for the rest of his life or as long as it took to make him act like a human being. The man's an ape, an utter gibbon. Yes, true. Gibbon inch and he'll take a mile, I laughed. Although I feel that might impugn the character of gibbons in general. I wish there was another way of describing people like Atlas without having to abase the names of animals. Yes, I see what you mean. To call Atlas a gibbon would be a compliment. Quite, Penelope chuckled. High praise indeed. Although, remarked Merrill, it's a little disturbing to think of him as a PE teacher. I mean, with responsibility for children. Yes, I groaned. I'm sorry to say that that fact escaped me. Do you think I need to do something? No, Penelope sighed. What good would it do? You have no proof of anything. And what would you say anyway without describing the events? And who'd even believe a story like that? I mean, we believe you because we know you, but it's really too loony for most people to think believable. I'd imagine, suggested Rebecca, he leads a double life. I mean, Amy works in a museum and so both of them probably have to keep their private lives quiet. They're probably used to lying low with what they get up to at home. Yes, sorry I mentioned it. I don't think there's really anything to worry about, Merrill added with an enormous smile that looked as if it was designed to put me at my ease about the issue. 
No, I groan, there definitely is something to worry about, and I'm glad you did mention it. I'm just disappointed in myself. It should have occurred to me before you're having to mention it. I think you're being unnecessarily severe with yourself, Vic. You can't be responsible for things that are outside your control, Merrill almost pleaded. Thing is, Merrill, it is within my possible influence. If the school ignores me, then that's the end of my responsibility. But I just can't stand to think of young girls being subjected to PE with that loathsome, loathsome, loathsome words fail me. The three ladies burst out laughing at that point and Penelope exclaimed, If that's what's troubling you, you've got nothing to worry about. It might have escaped your attention, but they don't allow men to teach PE to girls. Then it was my turn to laugh. I've never been happier to look stupid in my life. It's not stupid to care about other people, Vic, commented Merrill. And besides which, we're not laughing at you. I know that, I laughed, but it is rather funny. Yes, and I was laughing at myself too, Merrill smiled, because that fact had also slipped me that he wouldn't be teaching girls. You know, I just can't say what a profound relief that is. It would have cut across the grain with me to have to be some sort of informer. There's always been something so disgustingly self-righteous about it, even though I know that wouldn't have been my motivation. There are some other things that are funny about it too. The three ladies all motioned me to continue with hands and eyebrow movements according to their custom. Well, for a start, it's bizarre to find myself being like my father. I mean, how did I suddenly get to be the bastion of moral propriety? I mean, my father was the one who was morally outraged that Alice's parents gave me and three five-year-old girls a naked shower with the garden sprinkler hose one hot summer's day. And here I am almost 20 years later being morally outraged by Atlas. When what he did had nothing to do, as far as I know, with how he is as a schoolteacher. Rebecca was about to butt in, but I raised my hand to indicate that I had more to say. The other thing is a question of the adjectivally thin dividing line between skinny-dipping-in-the-esque and the naked Latiham. I mean, who am I to be so goddamn censorious anyway? You're the one who thought Atlas would be teaching PE to young girls, Merrill stated quite seriously, so I really don't think your court case against yourself holds up very well. Beside which... You're planning to be a foundation lecturer, not a school teacher. So you can skinny dip to your heart's content without having to have any dark night of the soul about it. Got me there, I grinned. So now I think I can sleep in peace without having to gnaw a hole through the, atri through the mattress or whatever. So now it's all shipshape and Bristol fashion, Penelope laughed. Nicely expressed. I laughed. 
Yes, Rebecca almost choked on her own laughter. And it sounds from what you told us that Bristol's were very much in fashion up there in the River Esk. So it would seem, I laughed. We all went off to bed in merry frames of mind. I lay awake for a while, thinking back on the bizarre scenario in Liverpool. In terms of being a knuckbook, was it a mistake to have gone there? Or was it simply an experience which showed me more of what the world contained? I kept coming back to this question. I hoped it would eventually become too tedious to contemplate. Did I need to know everything the world contained? Certainly not, but what or where was the boundary line? I remember the Australian Hells Angel who worked for a while on Sir Lindsay Parkinson's scaffolding yard. He'd been gaunt, taciturn and forbidding, but not inimical. He'd experienced three tours of duty in Vietnam as a volunteer and was awaiting the confirmation of a fourth tour. I'd asked him why he went and he'd replied that it paid well and gave him licence to kill. I remember being stunned by that. It was icy the way he was so matter-of-fact about it. I asked him if he wasn't afraid of dying and he replied, we all die. Yes, we all die. The only thing he lived for was his immaculate motorcycle. His life and death were otherwise an irrelevance to him. His Levi's had never been washed, nor had any of his clothing, but his chopped hog gleamed as if it had just been taken out of the showroom. I've always been grateful that I met him, if only to realise that there are people who are frightening, simply by virtue of whom they are. He was obviously a psychopath but an honest psychopath. He made no boast of the fact that he was a mercenary and enjoyed his work, but he gave no sense of glee in his licence to kill. His enjoyment seemed sterile. There was no sense of ghoulishness about it, just something spine-chillingly inhuman. It was as if he'd arrived from some extraterrestrial culture where normal human feelings were genetically absent. The bizarre thing about remembering this man, whose name I cannot remember, was that in comparing him with Atlas, Atlas came off worse. As soon as this thought emerged, I felt uneasy about it. How could I prefer a psychopathic mercenary to a bumbling, sexually deranged poltroon like Atlas? Maybe it was simply because I'd never been on a battlefield. Maybe it was because it was just too strange, too far off and too abstract to understand. Maybe the tale of the Hell's Angel had been a fabrication. If it had been fictional, however, there was no sense of the braggadocio that usually accompanies tall stories. On that outre observation, I fell asleep. 
I dreamt that night. It was not a dream of clarity, but it was a dream of the Arogar in Tibet. The valley high in the mountains ringed by mountains. An isolated valley, the only entrance to which was a cavern through which a river ran. There was a greenness to the environment and a kind of green that I could almost taste. It was a green I had never seen in my waking life and I had no way of comparing it with any shade of paint, either in oil paint or gouache. I made a point of not mixing colours if I could help it, so I had quite an array of paints. Iron oxide green was the colour that came closest, but speckled with viridian and emerald. Somehow in the dream I was aware of wanting words to describe the colours I saw. The valley was entirely cut off to the outside world in the winter months. I saw a sea of tents that were fabricated from felt, a few that were white, and one large tent made of tiger hides. I knew the tiger tent was where I lived, or where I had lived. The strange aspect of the dream was that I was not entirely myself. I was partly Aroyeshe. There was some strange oscillation in terms of being a stranger in the gar and a person who was entirely familiar with it. There must have been some moments of lucid dreaming because at a few junctures I was able to question my identity in the dream. The frustrating aspect of the lucidity was that I kept losing it halfway through attempting to reconcile anything with anything else. Two names became evident, Jomo Ayekandro and Jomo Ashekandro. They were sitting in the sun just beyond the tent. I wanted to speak to them, but the dream dissolved before I was able to do so. When I awoke, I forgot the dream. It only returned to me some hours later. The first thing that had occurred to me on waking was the thought with which I'd fallen asleep. I wondered, would Kate's friends think I'd been frightened by the Latihan? Did they think I'd run off in a state of terror because God was too much for me or some such thing? This distanced me from the dream, but I did not realise that until the dream re-emerged. I was surprised by the force of clarity with which the dream returned, but could not be sure whether I had remembered it all. I spent some time reconstructing the details of the dream memory, and gradually more aspects fell into place. Remembering the dream was almost like dreaming, and I seemed to enter a state that was somewhat removed from conventional reality. It became a daydream but a lucid daydream in which I was engaged in developing what the dream had been. In the end, I lost track of what had been a daydream and what had occurred during the night. In the end, it merged in terms of a sense of memory that seemed little different from memories of my current life. The ladies entered and sat across the room, peering at me in a half-amused manner. I opened the conversation. I just got a letter from Kate. It confirms our notion. And of course, Jan was entirely correct. 
I'm ever so slightly irked that I wasn't able to take her advice. I should have left the first night. I should have slept rough in the nearest stretch of countryside. I had my roll bag and blanket. I had the waterproof cover for my motorcycle that I could have thrown over. It had been warm and dry in any case, and I could have enjoyed gazing up at the stars. The ladies nodded matter-of-factly, and I concluded, I wonder whether I should reply to Kate or not. I decided to show Kate's letter to the ladies and ask them what they thought. Well, Penelope offered when they'd all perused the letter, you could just thank her for her letter and her concern, tell her you hope she won't be offended by your reply, and then just be direct about why you left. Yes, I think I need to tell Kate that it wasn't fear that drove me away. It was my motorcycle. I grinned. You know, like Hotspur says to Kate when she asks, what takes you away? And he replies, my horse, my love, my horse. Very funny. Maybe you should, Rebecca laughed. I think some things are better savoured, unspoken or unwritten. The reason I went to bed early was because I'd had enough of being in a room with Atlas masturbating trying to get women to fillet him and laying on a monstrous crying jag because no one would oblige him. I may be squeamish, I have to admit, but I found it banal and terminally tedious. Yes, commented Merrill, I can't see what was supposed to be spiritual about any of that. Mind you, I thought it was very funny what Kate related about the opinion of the bestial Atlas. Oh, yes, Rebecca laughed. You were frightened because religious conservatives are terrified of coming anywhere close to the experience of God. That's a complete and utter hoot. Yes, it's a hoot, all right, I sighed. But it makes me uncomfortable that Kate's so caught up in all that, that she's not able to challenge that point of view. I did try to warn her about Atlas. It strikes me, Penelope ventured, that whatever you said to Kate in Liverpool will have been blown away by now by what they've said. You're not there anymore to provide an alternative point of view, and you did leave without saying a word. You think that was a mistake? I asked, perfectly prepared to admit I'd been in error. Hard to say, Penelope replied with a frown of introspection. What would your staying have achieved? Opportunity for an extremely unpleasant argument? Exactly. I'd have left just as you did, Penelope shrugged. I wouldn't have seen any point in staying on just to have an ugly argument with that asinine ape, Atlas. For me, leaving as I did was, well, I had two options. One was to have been frank and the other to have been diplomatic. Being frank would have been quite explosive and would have been painful for both Kate and Amy. I don't think Kate deserved my frankness quite so directly and I don't think Amy deserved it either. She had been reasonably friendly to me and had given Atlas a private ticking off for being rude to me. So that option wasn't workable. The other option was to have been diplomatic but 
even if I could have kept it up, it would have been quite an ordeal. No, I think I did the right thing by leaving as I did. I think that your best approach with answering Kate's letter, said Merrill, is to say exactly what you just said. Tell her your two options and why you couldn't take either. That way you don't have to comment in detail on what you thought about it all and you may even give her something to think about. All's well that ends well then. I'd say just chalk it up to a cheesy experience, Rebecca grinned. It'll probably make a funny story one day. Yes, it'll probably make Det laugh and give her complete validation in her opinion that religion is for the brain dead, I said, with a slightly wearied shake of my head. I decided to be slightly economical with the account I gave Det. There'd be no need to mention Jan's slight indiscretion, or the knickers, or the discussion of breasts on the bank of the Esk, or... Maybe I'd simply not say anything. No, that wouldn't work. I hated being secretive or having to edit my life in that way. I'd just have to deal with whatever Det's reaction might be. So how did Det enjoy the story of your trip? Merrill grinned rather too gleefully when I returned from the first day back at art school. She didn't, I smiled and shrugged. She said, spare me the details, I'm sure it was all very esoteric. And so I spared her the details. I think, Merrill nodded thoughtfully, that's just as well. And that was the final outcome. The subject never arose again and it was as if I'd never made the journey. It simply evaporated into space. The problem was, however, that it remained with me as a reminder that Det and I were definitely not a long-term liaison. I couldn't settle to the idea of a relationship in which part of my life existed in a secret compartment. I couldn't imagine Lindy Dale wishing to live in ignorance of any part of my life or of my being grateful that it should be so. I would not have kept anything hidden from Lindy, but then she'd have come to Sammy Ling with me and then the story would have been entirely different. I wouldn't have found myself travelling as a pseudo-single man. Thoughts of this kind were leading to a logical outcome. I'd approached an adieu with debt before and she'd retracted from the possibility in such a way as to turn the tables on me. If it's a matter of religion, I suppose I will have to let you have your own ideas on the subject of art. Far be it from me to get between a man and his religion. Once she'd said that, it took the wind out of my sails. I accepted that we'd either continue our cruise, become becalmed, flounder, sink or whatever. It wasn't that we didn't still have enjoyable times but I missed the sense of lively romance there once was. It didn't feel healthy to me to be engaged in what felt like a marriage of convenience. Afternoon teas every Sunday at the pump rooms in Bath were fine by me. The string quartet was wonderful as always. 
So was the American Museum at Claverton and every other place. There was nothing wrong with anything in one way, but there was nothing fabulously right with it either. There was always some sense in which I'd been co-opted into her father's vision of how life should be lived. I would really have to take a deep breath and say what had to be said. Debt would not be, and could not be, the sangyum I was supposed to find. I was wasting her time. I was wasting my time and wasting the opportunity that Dujamrimshe had provided.